This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. My guest spent 26 months homeless on the streets of Winnipeg. He lost $150,000 a year income in advertising and could not handle the trauma of that experience as he suffered from unchecked clinical depression. Months later, he was on the streets. He was turned away by the healthcare system as a homeless person. Al Weeb joins me today. Al, I am thrilled and delighted to have you. You are now a 24-7 advocate for the homelessness and those in poverty. You chair Lived Experience Circle in Winnipeg. You're the co-chair of Canadian Lived Experience Leadership Network. You direct a lived experience-led, empathy-driven housing program in Winnipeg, Toronto, and Vancouver. You're facilitating a lived experience leadership program that promotes persons with lived experience to leadership roles in a three-year national project. You host a radio show of no fixed address to help educate and advocate for poverty and homelessness and specialize in community and peer engagement. And I'm thrilled and delighted to have the opportunity to work with you with the City of Human Rights Committee of Council. Al Weeb, welcome to Humans on Rights. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the invite to be on the show. You know, if, if human rights don't matter, I've, I've heard in our city, human rights don't matter. If human rights don't matter, what, what does matter in our world today, right? Well, for sure, Al. And I mean, obviously, shelter is a big human right and something you're very passionate about. So, Al, let's go back to the beginning, if you will, and then we can talk about some of the stuff you're doing now. But how did you find yourself homeless? Well, I was an advertising sales executive for basically seven and a half years at the same organization. I loved my job and I was really good at it. I worked six and a half hours a day for that kind of money. And my boss always told me, well, if you worked eight hours a day, how much more could you make? Well, I'm quite happy with what I make. <laughs> but I overheard a conversation in May of 2009. The conversation went like this. Well, we're letting Al go on this date. So I circled November 6th on my calendar, which was the last day of my selling cycle for 2009. How old were you at that time? I was 55 years old at that time. And that was the problem. I was not part of the generation coming up. And the boys who were buying, buying into the company, one of their friends, or uh, you know, they actually brought in several of their friends to replace me. Because, you know, that was the direction they wanted to go in. And there was nothing I could do about it. Come October, they gave me a month to get my work done for the cycle. And, and November 7th, you know, November 6th, I walked out the door for the last time. So you sort of knew it was coming. But of course, when it happens, it's a surprise. It was. It, it was still a shock. When they came to me in October, I said, well, just let me go now. But now they need my ability to finish out the year. It was a shock. And, you know, I've been suffering from clinical depression and anxiety and, you know, unchecked and unmedicated. I was always strong enough through my past life to handle it. So I thought I could handle it now. But, you know, this one really took its toll on me because my workplace colleagues and my family was out of the province or my sister was in Toulon and we were having, you know, communication. And so I was kind of in isolation and I had no support. And that created a problem. So, Al, were you born in Winnipeg? I was born in Winnipeg, and I only spent four years outside of Winnipeg when I moved to Vancouver in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Were you educated here in Winnipeg? Yes. I had a scholarship to go to Carleton because I was going to become a, a journalist or a writer. And we ended up getting pregnant at 17. <laughs> and that changed the script. And 
I ended up purchasing my dad's housing exterior business. Instead, he was a pastor and he wanted to go full-time into ministry. And so I picked up the business and did that for, you know, about a dozen years. And the ironic thing is today I write, have my works published many, many times. So you've, you've eventually become a writer. Yes, absolutely. So Al, in that business, you were obviously well-paid. You had a family. No, I didn't. I was single. Oh, you were single. Okay. So did you ever know anybody or see people on the streets? And were you ever at that point wondering about these people that seemed to be homeless? Now, you know what? At that point in time, it wasn't even, didn't even cross my uh, radar. Not at all. You know, of course, occasionally, sure, you'd see somebody, right? But it, I just wouldn't give them a thought. Not one thought because it's not my business, right? And that, that was my attitude. My whole life at that point in time was becoming as, as good a sales rep as I could be and, and, you know, make lots of money. So you were on the streets for 26 months. Right. Maybe a little after, maybe 28. 28. Okay. So what did you do during those 28 months? Well, the whole thing is that, uh, you know, um, I ended up walking away from my apartment and moved into the cinema going on the park and left my apartment complete with all its furniture, about 10 grand worth of furniture in the apartment. And just walked away from it. I was becoming very suicidal. And I ended up going into Cinnabon Gordon Inn in the park for about a month and a half. And this was after I spent about 30000 bucks on a cross-country trip, trying to spend my way out of my depression. And I ended up staying in the Cinnabon Gordon Inn in the park for about a month and a half. And, and uh, I was becoming suicidal. Well, I was trying to figure out how am I going to do this. Didn't want to cut my wrist. I hate blood. I didn't want to do anything that really, really hurt. So I said, okay, let's, let's try hypothermia. The winter of 2010 was really, really cold, uh, much like last year. A lot, of, a lot of winter, a lot of nights between minus 30, minus 40. And so I figured, easy trip. You know, when I left my apartment, I left with two sets of clothes, uh, two sets of shoes, overcoat, a suit jacket, tie, uh, two blankets, and a pillow. And that was it. And when I walked out of the Gordon Inn, I uh, left with the same. And I'd eaten in a place called Mama Foes, which is on the corner of McPhillips and William, or close to McPhillips and William. And in the back of that restaurant, I'd seen about 13 cars that they worked that the company called Diaz Auto used for parts. And one of those was a 64 Mercedes Benz. And I used to drive a Mercedes six months prior to. I let my Mercedes go because I knew I was going to lose my job. But I was driving a nice ride, you know. And, uh, you know, it was a nice status symbol because that's where I was in those days. And so I uh, crashed in a 64 Mercedes in the back alley against the wall of Diaz Auto. Found out later that sunroof leaked. And the front window was broken, and leather seats are not great when you have to live in them in wintertime when it's they're hard and cold, and in summertime they're hot and sticky, right? And I spent 14 and a half months in that car. Did people know you were living there, Al? No, no, they didn't. And the, that was one of the issues. I had to leave at seven in the morning when they opened, or before seven when they opened. I could only come back after seven at night when they closed because I did not want them to come in and see my meager belongings. My life was my clothes and my blankets, right? I did not want them to see those things in the car. That was my life, right? And my, the most trauma I faced every day was leaving that car and leaving all those things in the car and hoping that somebody wouldn't find them if they came looking for parts in the car. So when you left that car, knowing that you would be gone for somewhere between 12 and 14 hours, I mean, obviously over the course of 28 months, there's every day you do something different, but what would be a typical day for Al Weeb, who is homeless at that point? Well, it depends on what, what uh, if I was going to wash up that particular day and wanted to do that, I would between the McDonald's and the Burger King on the corner of McPhillips and Notre Dame, as well as the Salisbury House, which was there at that point in time. 
I would rotate every day and, and wash up. And when I felt like shaving, I'd shave. And once every couple of weeks, I'd go wash my clothes in the same washrooms. And you know, occasionally, I'd have to throw my clothes in the toilet in the cubicle just because somebody was coming in. I didn't want, want to see anybody see me washing my clothes. But I would walk around collecting beer cans for a good portion of those 12 hours. And I would also collect drive through change from the uh, Burger King and McDonald's and, and the Tim's. There's a drive through Tim's on the corner there as well. And I made money that way and collecting beer cans. It was really, really tiring. It's really, really tiring day when you have to walk around all day long. And, you know, I was one of those that did not use a Gopi table. I did not use Salvation Army. did not use Main Street Project or Lighthouse Mission. did not use any of the service providers. I was too proud. I made 150 a year. I don't need those things, you know? So I made my money and my existed on what I collected in beer cans and drive through change. Also, right next to the Health Sciences Center, the University of Manitoba's Medical School, you know, the Bodhi Center is, is there. And on the second floor, the mezzanine floor, at that point in time, they had roughly 60 comfy chairs and footstools. And the doctors and nursing students would go in there, put their feet up, and lose change out of their pockets. And the change would fall in between the cushions. And I'd go dig my fingers in there and hands in there and collect change. That was between collecting beer cans and drive through change and finding change between the seats every day. That would take up a good portion of my day. And the other times that I would try to find a place to rest and find something cheap to eat, you know, either I'd go, you know, cut my change and buy a coffee at Tim's and her at McDonald's and 88 cent seniors coffee. And I hang out as long as I could and go to another place and hang out as long as I could before they kicked me out, right? And I try to look presentable every single day and not look like other homeless folks, right? So they wouldn't kick me out. And I just nurse my coffee and and I'd go down to the Quest down here downtown and sit in the basement and uh, have a coffee in the bar and stay there as long as I could and just find places to crash. But I wouldn't use the area downtown. I did not want to be like those people. So, Al, one of the things that, you know, you obviously have to make sure, as you say, you want to be presentable. You don't want to look like a regular. You need to move around a fair bit so that they don't want to sort of kick you out. Did you ever get involved in alcohol or drugs at that point? No. You know, I'm, I'm really, really fortunate. Thanks for asking that question because it's, it's important. If I had had an addiction out there, I would not have made it. You know, I, I see people that have addictions out there on the street, and I just wonder, how are you doing? you got to be awful strong to have an addiction and still make it. But then a lot of people turn to addiction to escape the street as well, mentally, right? Because it's a tough place and there's so much trauma. I didn't do that. I was lucky. How did you eventually get to the position that you started to get back on your feet. Yeah, this is a, it, it's, it's a good story. And it, it plays into how I present my, you know, my training day. It plays a big part in that because people have to know. One of the things that people hang on to is a solitary thread, and that thread is hope. And the bottom of that thread is, is a word called hope. And my thread was really, really fraying. I went up to Health Sciences Center, which was two blocks up on William, and they rejected me three times and could not see the fact that this homeless person was in suicidal ideation. After the third time, I jumped into the Simboin River. And from there, I went to Misericordia, and I got the same rough treatment. And finally, I ended up getting help at the same hospital where a doctor saw through the homeless facade and saw that there was a real person underneath and just didn't see this homeless person that was out that for a handout, right? She's saving my life and, and being that the angel of mercy is what I called her and the engine that drove me forward. I went into the hospital, and I knew it was in a different place. The trails nurse had security followed me all over the place when I went there. Is this at St. Boniface, Al? St. Boniface Hospital? St. Boniface, yes. St. Boniface Hospital, right. 
And I took a bus over those two bridges. I collected enough change to take a bus over those two bridges so I wouldn't jump off if I walked over. But she had me followed around. And uh, after 24 hours and six minutes, I was finally seen by a doctor in the room with this put psych patients. And here's the key to everything. She said to me, Al, you've been here, you've been here, you've been here, that they couldn't help you, wouldn't help you, or did not want to help you. But today I'm going to help you. It's like you, you've lost your identity and it's like you've fallen off the edge of the world. And you don't know where you are, you don't know who you are, and you don't know how to help yourself. But today, I'm going to help you. And she made a pulling motion on a rope, and I still see that burnt in my memory today. And like she's pulling me into the spaceship and out of, out of harm's way. But starting today, your life is going to change. You're going to become better. You're going to become stronger. Like, think about that last one for a second. You're going to become the person you always wanted to be. Who says that? You know, those are such you know, enormous words. And she said, but it's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen tomorrow. not going to happen next year. Not even going to happen in two years' time, but you're going to get there. He said, I believe in you, but you have to believe in you. And I see you doing things for people that are in exactly your position here today, somewhere down the line. And I fell on the floor and I started crying. I couldn't stop because here was somebody that was going to help me. And I ended up going to Victoria Hospital. And she said, that she, instead of kicking me out, she actually looked around the city for, for a psych ward, a psych bed for me. And she found one in Victoria Hospital. And I stayed there for a month, the first stage of my recovery. And here's another important fact. And when I got there, I couldn't eat. I couldn't talk. I couldn't even get two thoughts together because of the trauma was coming down. The trauma of everything was, was hitting me really hard. But after I could, I started thinking, someday I'm going to talk to the powers that be at the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority about the troubles I had in the emergency room and also the good doctor at St. B. But how is that going to happen? Here I was a messed up homeless person, right? With a myriad of psychological problems, psychiatric problems that, you know, I wouldn't be able to overcome anytime soon. But uh, the doctor there sent me to the Salvation Army after a month. And in the first stage of my recovery, he did not want to be me to be on the streets again. He wanted me to be around people and get three squares a day. But, you know, living in the Salvation Army is still living homeless, right? It's, it's shelter. And it's worse than being on the street because I can't be institutionalized, but the smell of urine and solvents in the elevator and, you know, uh, the jostling line for food, the fights, everything. Just, I hated it there. They do wonderful work, just not for this cowboy. You know, I need, I, I can't be institutionalized. And, but while I was there, I was interviewed for the at-home state swap program, which was a $110 million housing research, program, a homeless research program put on by the federal government. And we're in Manitoba, or Winnipeg, 500 people got, uh, got interviewed, 250 people got apartments, and 250 people did not get apartments. But when they pushed the button in random selection, they randomly unselected me, did not select me. I ended up spending an extra four and a half months in Salvation Army because I wasn't selected from the computer in Calgary or someplace. And that was really PO'd about the Adam State Swap Program. Not only did they reject me, but I had to spend an extra four and a half months in Salvation Army because they couldn't find an apartment because they were taking up all the apartments out there. Finally, 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 I ended up getting an apartment and getting out. So how did you finally, finally get an apartment, Al? How did that happen? It was tough. And, uh, yeah, and I, I did it all on my own and ended up on Spence across from the University of Winnipeg and across from an organization called Mumway, which is an indigenous organization in Winnipeg that does wonderful work. And I saw people milling around on the deck, uh, you know, but it took a lot of work to find an apartment. And then me being homeless, I was lucky that they didn't discriminate against me because I was homeless. They actually gave me an apartment. But, uh, you know, I saw these people milling around uh, at this big greenhouse on the corner. And I, and I said, let's go see if they need some volunteers. I spent the next 28 months there volunteering. And I was the go-to guy because I was re- almost right across the street. And when somebody didn't show up, as you know, volunteers don't always show up. 
I was called in every single day, five days a week, pretty much, right? But the great thing about that was, and here's a key point as well, they allowed me to take 18-week course. Here it was, not, not totally competently, and not, you know, my acuity wasn't there. Here it was, I got through an 18-week course of EIA. I got through, you know, nonviolent crisis intervention, suicide prevention, assist. I got my food handlers, got my first aid CPR, tons of workshops and courses. And, you know, one of the greatest casualties of homelessness is loss of self-respect, dignity, self-confidence, all that stuff. What those courses did was it started building me up. I could open the cover door and put in one can of confidence and another one and another one and another one until my cover was full and I started feeling like a human being again. And I, I said, this is leading me somewhere. I just don't know where. Then one day, one day they asked me to, uh, to go be a drop-in at uh, Wichiwin, which is Arma Mamoy, which was the at-home say swa Arma Mamoy, the same program that rejected me at Salvation Army and <laughs> forced me to stay in Salvation Army another five months. So I ended up going to Mamoy and being a drop-in cook, you know, for about 30 people every Thursday. And I said to the director, I can do more than this. And uh, I got all these courses and everything. What am I going to do this? And so she said, well, try to get people into Mantua housing. We need extra housing. So I did that, and then somebody quit, an intensive case manager quit, and there she was, There I was. She said to me, Al, would you like to be an intensive case manager? So first job after five years, pretty much. Two and a half years of homelessness, two and a half years on the street, uh, in recovery, sorry. And she asked me, do I want to become an intensive case manager? Keeping people in their housing, my job was to keep the people in their housing. And if they got kicked out, relocate them. And that would be a paid job, right? That was a paid job. Great. I, I moved here for three months and then I got this. And this is my first paid job. Certainly wasn't about money or advertising. It was, it was about saving people, getting people to stay in their housing and supporting them to do that. You know, 28 months after I see these people, I, I, I looked down the roster and I saw 12 people from Salvation Army that I knew. And I said, can I have these guys? And my director said, sure. So two and a half years later, I'm knocking on, on their door and I'm saying, by the way, I'm a new case manager. The last time they saw me was at Salvation Army, standing on the sidewalk, the same as I'm in line for food. And Zach, they knew, but you know, the thing was, it was a beautiful thing because it's called lived experience. They realized that I'd been in their shoes. They knew that before Salvation Army, I was on the street. They knew where I was at Salvation Army with them. And what it did is it built that trust factor up. I was able to get them to do things that the other case managers wouldn't with their bachelor of social work and, and their MAs because they trusted me. I knew they knew that I'd been in their shoes and I was able to get people to move forward and do things that others weren't. And, you know, today I'm, I'm just the, the hugest advocate for lived experience and what we bring to them. And this is what I train on. Part of what I train on is that lived experience aspect of things. But I ended up going from there to the University of Manitoba, the University of Winnipeg, sorry, and ended up being there for over two years during the second phase of that home Swap program. And this is also a paid position. And what I did there was interview people, first of all, the 250 that did not get apartments in the study, which I was one. Only 10% of the 250 got, ever got out. And I was one of 25 people to get out. And I was one of the fortunate ones. And out of the entire 500, after we finished those, we interviewed the others. And my job was, as a person with lived experience, was to sit at the table with the master's researcher and the person that we found on the street to bring in for an interview and be a liaison because it's comfort with that lived experience. So my job was to be that buffer between that learned person and, and the homeless person and raise the comfort levels. And I, I spent 28 months in that, but you know, we lost, we lost 10% of the 500. Some were housed and some were homeless. It's, re, it's very, very real. And it follows you. And they always say for every seven, one year you spend, you lose seven years of your life. And 
I feel fortunate. You know, I, I'm lucky to be alive today, I think. I maybe overstayed my welcome already. You know, you obviously have got yourself into a position where the lived experience, as you say, is kind of the crux of what allows you to, you know, be a caseworker, be an advocate, an educator, all the things that you're doing now. I want to just sort of pause for a second and make reference to something that you started in the year 2017, which you started a memorial service for those homeless people who had perished that particular year. This is something you've done on an annual basis. Why was that important for you to do that? I was in London in 2016, and I saw the service being held there, the same type of service. And I said, why don't we not have this in Winnipeg? It's so important. I couldn't believe that nobody ever come up with this in Winnipeg. Right. But just shows our level of respect for the homeless. Right. So anyway, uh, I, I brought it back and, and you ask, why is it important? It's really important because so many people die and they don't get obituaries. They get nothing. They are dead and gone. And that is it. And they become a statistic. And it's so important that they get remembered. And every year I have a memorial service. First year was at the 2017 conference for the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness down at the convention center. And since then, it's been in Hope Valley in between the Bell Hotel and, and 650 yeah, Main Street. It's important that we remember them as people. And during our service, I asked if there's anybody in the audience that day from the shelters who has a memory or who has had someone that's passed away in the past year. And I get them to relay their stories. And we need to keep this as real as possible because there is so much disconnect between the folks on the street. And, you know, and people dying in vain if we don't honor their memories and even honor the people that are surviving them. So it's really important that we do that just so they're not remembered as statistics, but names and people. And, you know, we, we go into the shelters and we get people to put up names on, on boards in shelters. We bring those names to the memorial service and read them all aloud. So, Al, let me just ask you, with your experience and what you have lived through and what you see going on today, can we prevent homelessness, in your opinion? Yes, well, we have ways of preventing homelessness. We have prevention policies in place for people that are housed to prevent them from becoming homeless. We have several, uh, say, rent banks, like the Manitoba Nonprofit Housing Association, where I'm speaking to at that conference, and also Aboriginal Health and Wellness. Okay, here, here's an issue. During COVID, there were curb payments sent out, and there was also a moratorium on rents, uh, eviction during COVID. And what happened was people used curb for other things rather than paying rent. And when the moratorium was up, people owed thousands of dollars in rent and, and because they hadn't paid anything. And so, you know, funding was created at that point in time to prevent these people from getting kicked out and increasing the numbers on the street, but the numbers increased anyways. And their, their rent was paid in a number of cases. And those programs are still in place. As far as, you know, is uh, addictions and, and things are concerned, we need to educate more people. That's probably the only way and maintain more contact with people who are on the edge and let people know that there are programs out there for them before they become homeless, before they, you know, get kicked out on the street. And, you know, many people end up on the street. I've been part of the homeless count, the point in time count for many, you know, several different times. And many of the problems are, are from mental health and we need people to get mental health help and families, because families can't deal with it a lot of times, right? And, and addictions, we need people to be aware of where they can go for help for addictions if they're willing to. And so, you know, there are programs in place. We need to educate people about those programs to lessen the number of people coming on the street. Yeah, we, we can do that. Yeah. And then, Al, let me just get you a couple of comments just before we move to sort of close off this conversation. 
a lot of times people will say housing first. You know, if you really want to deal with homeless people and we see them in our bus shelters around the city, we see them on the riverbanks, housing first. What's your feeling about that concept? Well, yes, for me personally, because at Home Sessoir was a housing first program. And I feel you can't just put people in housing. It doesn't work. You know, they'll have other people in, destroy their apartments and get kicked out. And secondly, they won't stay in because they're not used to the responsibility. Welfare doesn't pay enough and they can't pay for food and shelter at the same time. So they need supports. And the Adopsy Swap program proved that it's cheaper by 22.5% to house people and let them be seen once or twice a week with supports by a case manager than it is to leave them on the streets. It's 22.5% to even to give them supports, have a case manager work with them all the time. I think it's a really good program. You just can't say, here you go, here's your apartment. And I would say we can't end homelessness because now I get uh, you know in trouble for that, but that's okay. Because we don't have, the government doesn't have enough money. And all three levels of government have to work together and they don't do that on a, a regular basis either. You need that private sector to contribute to building low rental housing, not affordable housing, but housing geared to income. Right or low-income housing, and okay, let's say we had all the money in the world could do this. Right now, I sit on I'm the vice chair of the community advisory board, and we just get dribbles and drabs right now from the federal government, not enough to really make a dent, just to stay even. But if we did have all the money in the world, we wouldn't have enough people to support and create a housing first program and support everybody. So yes, a housing first is a really good program because it lends supports and helps people stay in their housing. And we call it Housing First now, but it's not the at-home state swap program anymore, but it's a lot of our programs now are built on that. As a community advisor, we support organizations that use the Housing First program because it's the best way to keep people in housing. So, Al, if there was somebody listening and said, you know, how can I help? What would you say to them? You know, I always say that you can never do too little or you can never do too much, you know. Number one, if you're one of these people People that drive on the bridge or Disraeli bridge and see somebody and calls two and one, well, they're not the kind of people that would say, what can I do to help? <laughs> anyway, but what you can do to help is a really good question. There are many shelters that need help. But, you know, during the summer, extreme weather, both in summer and in winter, not just winter, but it's in summer too, when you get temperatures get up to plus 35, plus 40. I'll tell you what, call me and we'll go out and we'll do some one-on-one with people on the street. You know, homeless folks are called invisible people because people ignore them. Right. So my thing is, you know, acknowledge everybody on the street that you see with a handout. You don't have to give them anything, but acknowledge them as people. And, you know, there's something really powerful in doing that. And it powers it makes them think that, yes, I'm important enough to speak to you because they don't think of themselves as very high regard. So it's really important. Sure, sure, contribute to the, to the shelters. But, you know, shelters get a lot of money. And talk to a person like me because I, I do run, run a small housing place in the city. And, you know, there, there's people that you can see. You don't have to. Sp- you don't have to do a lot. Just, you know, say hello. You just have to be somebody that person can lean on sometimes, right? You don't have to do much, but people need that contact. For sure. For sure. You just have to recognize people as human beings. So Al, listen, I'm just about running out of time here. So one of the things that I'll make sure we do in the episode is, you know, make reference to some of the places where if people are listening, they could go to your website. They can get in touch with you personally. They can learn from you. Yes. You can find me on Facebook under Al Weave and I'll friend you. You can find me on LinkedIn under Al Weave as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Al Weave. You host a radio show of no fixed address to help educate and advocate for poverty and homelessness of no fixed address. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. 
Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's take this outside. A new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's take this outside. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.